uh, from went to Belize last week. Everybody take off. <laughs> I want to thank you for uh, praying for our team. Um, we had an unbelievable, outstanding trip. So how many of you had an opportunity to follow along with our website updates? Anybody? We had uh, updates on our website on a daily basis. And so if you were following along uh, with our updates, you know that uh, we had an uh, adventurous trip, uh, to say the least. Um, next week, we're going to devote our entire service um, to providing you an update on our trip and just talk about some of the amazing things uh, that God did. And so you will not want to miss um, next week. But today, there's a few things, uh, small things I want to make sure you're aware of, uh, just in case you're hanging around somebody that did go uh, to Belize last week. First, uh, if you try to call or text someone that was there last week, uh, you probably won't get them. Uh, we got used to not carrying our cell phones around. <laughs> so that was quite a blessing. Um, if you see someone that was in Belize uh, last week kind of doing this, you know, twitching, uh, they're not crazy. Uh, that's being done out of fear, uh, fear of no seams, uh, mosquitoes, and flesh-eating yellow flies. <laughs> if you see someone scratching your legs, you know, definitely encourage them not to scratch, uh, just to simply apply their medication. And then last, uh, if you happen to come across uh, toilets that need to be flushed occasionally, uh, please be patient because we've been living with the phrase, if it's yellow, let it mellow for quite some time. So uh, we might forget that. Uh, it'll come back to us. But uh, <laughs> but seriously, God did an amazing work. And uh, we're really looking forward to uh, sharing that all with you next week as we talk about what we've learned and then how to apply that to our lives uh, back here. Well, we're finishing up our series today, Bible Stories in 3D. And we're going to look at one of God's priorities for our life, and that is sharing Christ um, with others. And I'd like to start by asking you a question. When you look around at our community, what do you see? What are some of the things that you notice uh, as you interact with people? Maybe in your workplace, in your neighborhood, or your school. In fact, I want to ask you to do something with me. I want to ask you to close your eyes for a moment and uh, picture something that you think reflects our community. And so I'm going to ask you to share your thoughts uh, with the person next to you in just a moment. But go ahead, take a moment and uh, close your eyes. Go ahead and close them. And uh, picture something in your mind that you think reflects our community. Now go ahead and share that with the person next to you. And what did you picture in your mind? Hold up your hand for a second and uh, let me know. Did you? Uh, did anybody picture Tom's Market across the street? We had somebody picture Tom's Market. How about our church? How many of you saw a lake or a house? Um, how many of you saw a playground or a building? Anybody think of a building or a road or a store or something physical? You know, for the most part, I think when we think about our world, you know, we think about our physical world. It's uh, rare for someone to describe a community in terms of its people. For example, how many of you thought about uh, our community, you thought about kids or adults? Anybody think about people or maybe married or single people? Or maybe people that had or did not have a relationship with Christ? You see, most people look around and they see the world as we have made it. It does not come naturally for us to see things as God has created from His perspective. You see, God's concerned about our physical world. He's concerned about our physical needs. But more than that, even more than that, God is concerned with his creation. He's concerned with us, with people. On the inside of your program, you'll find an outline. If you would take that out with me for a moment, I'd like to read John 3.16 together. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
Now, that's a simple verse, right? Many people might have this passage memorized. It's very common. But when was the last time that you had an opportunity to share that great news with somebody close to you? When was the last time you caught your neighbor going out to get the paper? Hey, have you heard this great news? I mean, we memorized the passage. We got it. It's simple. But if you were going to explain that verse to someone in your own words immediately, tomorrow, say maybe a friend, a neighbor, or a co-worker, what does that passage mean? God loves you enough that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do what? To die on the cross for you and me. And that's part one. Part two is, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so take a moment, if you've got a pen, underline the word that in that passage. The reason that God sent his son was so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Our eternal life is a priority for God. Our eternal life is a priority for God. And spending eternity with God is a priority for Him. And it only happens as a result of our placing our faith in Christ. I was talking to a guy uh, during our vacation Bible school, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago. We were out in the lobby. We were talking about God. And he said to me, you know, I really don't have a lot of faith. I said, well, yes, you do. And he said, no, I don't. I said, oh, yeah, you do. you got great faith. And he goes, no, I don't. Yes, you do. Right here in the middle of the lobby, we're having this discussion about his faith. I said, you fly on a plane a lot, right? And he goes, well, yeah, I'm always flying. I said, you get onto that plane and you have great faith. You have faith that the pilots know what they're doing, that the pilot and the co-pilot are paying attention. You have great faith that the controller is not going to run you into another plane during takeoff or landing or while you're in the air. There's six million parts that hold the plane together. Half of them are fasteners. You have great faith that that plane is not going to come apart while you're up in the air. You fly in a piece of metal that weighs almost 1 million pounds, 25,000 feet off the ground. I said, you have great faith. The problem is that your faith is misplaced when it comes to understanding what happens after you die. You see, we've all got faith. The question is, is what have we placed our faith in? The most important question that anyone can ask themselves or their friends or their family is what happens after this life? What happens after we die? Right now, there are some of you here this morning that can't answer that question. And I want to encourage you today, you know, after the service, uh, to take an opportunity to talk with me. I'm going to come up. I'm going to be right here at the stairs after the service. And if you want to resolve that question in your mind today, I want to invite you to come up after the service is over. Our overseers are going to be in the front office uh, for overseers prayer today. And so if you can, uh, uh, you want to stop by and talk to them, they'll be more than happy to talk with you about that or, or pray with you about that. But you see, when you leave here this morning, when we leave here this morning, every single one of us will have made a decision for or against Christ. There's no in-between. And if you have not made a decision for Christ, or if you want to clarify that this morning, I want to invite you to come up and talk with me after the service. Our eternal lives and the eternal lives of other people around us are a priority for God. You know, is there something else in your life that's more important than this? This needs to be priority one. Our eternal life is a priority for God, but also so is our experiencing life to the full right now. You see, we are not all just you know, moving around through life waiting for heaven. Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
You see, it's also God's priority that through His Son, Jesus Christ, we have life to the full right now. In contrast to the thief who comes to uh, take, to steal, and destroy, Jesus has come to give us a full life right now. And I think many people look at this verse and they think this is a promise of a trouble-free life or that having a relationship with Christ somehow is going to lead to some kind of physical prosperity, but that's not what this passage teaches us. You see, throughout the book of John, there's a biblical theme that develops about a shepherd and a sheep. A shepherd is accessible to the sheep. He's with them. He watches over them. He protects them. And Jesus, as the chief shepherd, is compared and contrasted to a thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan's roaming around like a lion looking for someone to devour. But the Bible teaches us that when we have a relationship with Christ, you know, there's going to be some bumps in the road. Uh, the Bible tells us that there's going to be uh, the need for us to take a stand for our faith. It talks about persecution. It talks about suffering. It prepares us for the good and the bad times in our life. And this verse is a promise that through Jesus Christ and under his protection, we can experience the best life that God has to offer us, no matter what our circumstances are in life. Jesus came so that we can have eternal life, and we can have eternal life and, and have that life to the full right now. And to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple, is to be able to share who he is and what he's done with others. The message is simple. The plan is clear. Now all we need to do is avoid being distracted. It is so easy for distraction to creep into our lives and keep us from God's best. This was, not, this was something that wasn't uh, uncommon for the disciples as well. In fact, uh, if you brought your Bible with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 4. There's a story about Jesus and a Samaritan woman. And uh, if you brought your Bible with you, you can read along. We're going to be beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, then just listen to this passage uh, as I read them. The Pharisees had heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Though, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea, and he went once more back to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sitgar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. You know, in uh, New Testament time, it's in the middle of the afternoon, in the heat of the day. A Samaritan woman comes up and sits down by him, and she starts to draw water. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because the Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus would go on to tell the woman all about who he is, but I want to stop there for a moment. Jesus is in Sitgar. It's in the middle of the afternoon in the heat, and he's sitting there having this great spiritual conversation with a Samaritan woman. Jews would not have been caught dead with Samaritans, but here's Jesus. He's sitting there with her. We'll soon find out she's been married five times, and now she's living with a guy. You know, she didn't want to come to uh, the well with all the other ladies in the morning when it was cool, you know, probably because they uh, talked about her, you know, whispered about her. She was embarrassed to be around them. You know, who knows? But here sits Jesus, and he's entering into this great spiritual conversation about the fact that he is the promised Messiah. He's the Christ, the Savior that everyone is waiting for. This is big news. It's a big story for many reasons. But the thing that caught my attention last week was where are the disciples while all this is going on? 
Verse 8 says that they had gone into town to buy some food. You know, I'd like to think that if uh, Jesus was here today physically, that I would want to follow him around everywhere. I'd be afraid that I was going to miss something. I would just eat when he ate, right? I can almost hear the disciples say, hey, you want to go hang out with Jesus this afternoon and see what he's going to do? Nah, it's hot. I'm hungry. You know, let's go to town and get something to eat. (laughs) You know, Jesus is doing this amazing work, and the disciples are out getting cheesy fries or burgers or something. You know, I, I don't know. The disciples got distracted. You know, they missed an opportunity to see firsthand and be a part of this amazing work that God was doing. You know, the interesting thing about that is, is it gets worse. In verse 27, uh, when the disciples come back, uh, they're surprised to see him talking with this woman, but no one asks, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? I mean, their mind is not even there. You know, what does it mean when it says, but no one asked? It means that they were thinking about it, but no one asked a question. No one said to the woman, hey, what are you doing here? You know, what do you want? No one said to Jesus, hey, why are you talking to that Samaritan woman? You know, the woman gets up and she leaves and she goes and tells her friends and her family. She's excited. This great thing has just happened in her life. And listen to what's on the mind of the disciples. In verse 31, after she leaves, they say, hey, we brought you something to eat. Eat something. (laughs) Then in verse 32, Jesus says, and we have the words here, but somehow I just wished we could uh, capture the tone of his voice. He says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. You know, the disciples just don't get it. I can almost see them standing there looking around, kind of shrugging their shoulders with chilling on their face or something. You know, I don't know. In verse 33, the disciples said to each other, did someone bring him food? I mean, their stomachs are running the show. And then in verse 34, and this verse is on your outline as well, Jesus says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, hey, four more months and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. You see, the disciples have been distracted. They had no sense of urgency about what they were supposed to be doing, about Christ's mission in the world. I think they were taking their relationship with Jesus for granted and that they didn't share his priorities. Oh, we have plenty of time. What's the hurry? Four more months until the harvest. But Jesus says, look. Right now, open your eyes. See things from my perspective. Look at the people. The harvest is ready right now. Focus on what's important. And so it's God's priority for us that we remain focused on Him and that we do His will. It's God's priority that we do His will. That we don't look at the world from our perspective, but that we look at the people around us from His It's God's priority that we have an eternal life, that we have it to the full right now, and to do the Father's will. And Jesus sums all of this up with his last words in the Great Commission. You know, you can tell a lot about a person and what's important to them by listening to their last words. I want to share with you some of these that I found uh, recently. Leonardo da Vinci, just before he died in 1519, said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. You know, I don't know, I think Leonardo was a little bit high on himself. Just, hey, he had a, you know, a little problem there. H.G. Wells, um, the novelist, said this in 1946. Go away, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, that guy's in denial. U.S. President George Washington on December 14, 1799, just before he died, said, I die hard, 
but I'm not afraid to go. Singer Ben Crosby, just before he died on October 14th, 1977, said, Fellas, this was a great game of golf. <laughs> king Louis XVIII, King of France, said in 1824, I think a king should die standing up. <laughs> the Queen of Persia in 1820 said, Just before she died, I'm queen, but here I lie without the power to raise my arms. And then there's my favorite, General John Sedgwick, was a Union commander during the U.S. Civil War, and he was killed in battle in 1864. These are his famous last words. Oh, they can't shoot. They couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. <laughs> Stopped in mid-sentence. <laughs> I, found, I didn't, couldn't find it on Snoops. It was on the Internet. You know, but mid-sentence, the guy gets caught there, right? Now, what do you think your famous last words would be? What would be your last words? If you were going to say your last words right now, what would you say? The last words of Jesus just before he died were this. It is finished. But those were not his last words because Jesus came back to life. There was over 500 witnesses. And uh, his last words just before he returned to heaven are recorded in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19. The last words of Jesus are known as the Great Commission, and they're on your outline. Let's read them together. Therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. You know, what would Jesus want his disciples to know at the last hour? It was this. How to make God's priorities a reality in their lives. How to make God's priority a reality in their own lives. And that's a reality that we share in today. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Therefore, go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. Jesus tells his followers to focus on the people, to go into all the world and make disciples. You know, we're to be God's fellow co-workers. We're to see the world from His perspective. And we're to live our lives according to His priorities. And it's through that that we can change the world. You know, this past week I've had an opportunity to spend a lot of time thinking about our trip to Belize. If someone held a ticket up for me right now, to go back, I think I could leave in four hours. I think I could get home, pack, and get to the airport. I would be gone. I've had such a difficult time this past week adjusting back to the life that I had before our trip. And after I thought about that for a moment, I thought, well, you know, why would I want to adjust back? Let this trip change me. This past week, I realized that there are activities and behaviors that can creep into my life and distract me from God's parties. It's easy to be distracted by otherwise good things. But there's something about making a commitment, about making a covenant with God, and then acting on it, like we did in Belize, that enables God to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. There was something about having a fixed amount of food together while we were in Belize that our team had to share. And there was a couple of times that we got corrected. You see, the people in the front of the line, if they took too much food, you know what happened? The people in the back didn't get any. You know, food could have been a distraction. We're so accustomed to be able to go back for seconds, and we're so accustomed to the, the abundance that when we get into a position where we're forced to think about other people, it's amazing 
How the contrast, just how, how clear the contrast is. Food can be a distraction if you're not thinking about one another. You know, I can understand the disciples going to get food. You know, part of me is sympathetic while Jesus was talking to that Samaritan woman. It's easy to be distracted by all the restaurants and the stores and the conveniences that we enjoy here. There was something about our getting up together and doing devotions together every morning before we started our day. We lifted it up to God. There was something about having to walk together everywhere and working together everywhere and sharing our pain and suffering together and serving God together. There was something about serving each other and serving others and talking to other people that were open to having their physical and spiritual needs met. God moved in a powerful, tangible way. And I cannot imagine why anyone would not want more of that. I cannot imagine why anyone that has a relationship with Christ, why they would want to keep that to themselves. The trip was powerful. It was exhilarating. It was life-transforming. It was an encounter with a living God. Who in their right mind would not want more of that? Is there something that is distracting you this morning and keeping you from experiencing more of God? As we move through this morning, it's my prayer that God would reveal those things to you and help you to be able to identify ways to remove those distractions. Because the more that I thought about our time in Belize, the more I realized that while I loved the people there, the most powerful part of our time together came from being focused on God together. When you encounter God in a real, living, and tangible way, it changes your life. When you step out in faith and, and you proclaim your faith in Christ, it changes you. When you make a public commitment to Christ through baptism, it changes you. When you share your faith in Christ with others, it changes you. And the more I thought about uh, our trip, the more I came to understand that we can do missions anywhere. There was something about our focus in Belize, but we can be focused anywhere. Understanding God's priorities and seeing them reflected in our lives are two very different things. And so I want to spend some time this morning looking at God's priorities in our life using the Great Commission. The first command that Jesus gives us is on the back of your outline, and it's this. Go make disciples. Underline that first word, go. You know, we did not have to go to Belize to go on a missions trip. You know, we're called to be witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And so we need to cover the globe. But you can be on a mission with God wherever you find yourself. At school, at work, in your neighborhood, at home. In Matthew chapter 2, King Herod tells the Magi, go make a search for Jesus when he was a baby. There was an expectation that the Magi would leave the place that they were and go out to find where Jesus was born and where he was staying. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, who was called Abram at the time, to leave his country, leave his people, leave his father's household, leave everything and go to the land that God would show him after he left. There was an expectation that Abraham would get off the couch, sell his house and leave. And when Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us to go make disciples, he expects us to move, to move from here to there and tell others the good news about Christ. And it may or it may not mean that you need to relocate. 
You know, the thrust of this command is while you are going, in other words, wherever you are, make disciples at home, neighborhood, at work, your school, you know, maybe overseas, wherever you are, look for opportunities to impact others and to talk to others about Christ. Go make disciples. Now underline that uh, next word, make. What does it mean to make something? Now, I was in manufacturing for 15 years before uh, ministry, and I used to make hospital supplies. And so if you've ever been to a doctor's office or if you've ever been into a hospital emergency room, as you look around in there, um, if it was disposable, I probably have made it. You know, I've made gloves, uh, needles, hair covers, booties. You know, I've made everything that's disposable you could find uh, in, in a hospital room or doctor's office. And some of it not even disposable. If you came to me and you held up a chainsaw and said to me, hey, look, I made a scalpel. <laughs> I'd say, dude, that's not a scalpel. That's not a scalpel. Get it away from me. You know, you're not using that on me. You know, to make something requires some raw materials. Us, our hearts. There's a process that goes into making something. Making disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey. There's a process that goes into making something. And then there's the idea or the end in mind. What are you trying to make? Making a chainsaw, making a scalpel, making a glove are all very different things. What does it mean to make a disciple? What does a disciple look like? What are some examples from the Bible that show us what it means to be a disciple, a Christ follower, a Christian. A disciple is someone that believes that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That he came down to earth and through his death on the cross, paid the penalty for the sins of all who believe in him. A disciple is someone that has identified with Christ through baptism and made a public confession of faith. Do you realize there are, there's not one unbaptized Christian in Scripture? None. A disciple is someone that is bound together with other believers. Their membership in a local body of Christ. You know, they were all members of one another. They held everything in common. A disciple is someone that does not forsake routinely meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, and gives God the rightful place in every area of their life, with their time, their talents, their treasures. Discipleship begins with our understanding of our need for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then helping others to understand their need for a relationship as well. And then helping them to grow. Discipleship involves sharing what you know with other people. And the more you know, the more you have, the more you have to share. Going and making disciples also involves evangelism. Sharing your faith, being a witness. You know, if you are filling your mind with knowledge and you are not having an impact on the non-believers around you, then you are, you know, half a disciple. (laughs) We're called to make disciples at Springbrook. It doesn't happen by accident. You don't trip into discipleship. And so I want to invite you to think with me for a moment about where you are in the discipleship process. Recognizing that we're all at different points. We're all at different points on our spiritual journey. We're all at different points in this process. Where are you? There's a place uh, for you to indicate where you think you are on a scale from one to four. You know, where do you think you are? I'm a one, I'm a two, I'm a three, I'm a four. You know, where are you in this scale? You know, do you have questions about God and the Bible? Do you have questions about what it means to have a relationship with Christ? You know what? That's okay. We all started there. <laughs> Every one of us. And if you can't get your questions about God or the Bible or about a relationship with Christ, if you can't get those questions answered right here, 
then we've got another problem. You know, are you a leader in ministry, developing an apprentice, or having an impact? Are you investing in the lives of others? You know, a healthy ministry multiplies itself. One of the indicators of health of a believer or of a church is the fact that they multiply. It's our desire to see the multiplication of believers, the multiplication of small groups, and the multiplication of churches. You know, we're a part of a conference, Converge Worldwide, that's taking seriously the Great Commission, that's looking to identify leaders, raise them up, and send them out to plant healthy churches. You know, this past few weeks, you've had an opportunity to hear from different leaders in our, in our conference that are committed to that vision. We're committed to this idea of multiplication. You know, that's one of the indicators of health. And as you look at this, you know, maybe you're in the middle somewhere, just kind of growing uh, in your faith and trying to figure out what your next step is. You know, when we stop growing, you know what happens? We're dead. <laughs> Every one of us has an area of an opportunity for growth. And so there's a little place underneath that, you know, there's two little dots. You know, if you can think of something right off the bat, that's an area that you need to grow in, you can just write that down. If you can't think of anything and you want to know what your next step is, then I want to encourage you to let me know. You know just put a note on your welcome slip. I need to know my next step. You know, at the end of the service, if you'd like, you can, you can fill this out. You can write down any questions. You can put your name on here and you can share this with me. I'd love the opportunity to talk with you about this a little more. If you want to keep your notes, um, then I want to encourage you to put a note, just transfer it over to your welcome slip. And we're going to collect those uh, in just a little bit after, uh, you know, a little bit later in the service. We have a command to go make disciples of all nations. This command is to reach people around the world. You know, if God has not called you to go around the world, then he's called you to support and to send people. Each of us needs to look at this passage and pray and seek God's direction about what this command looks like in our life. You know, maybe it's Belize. Maybe it's China. Maybe it's short term. Maybe it's long term. Maybe it's somewhere in the U.S. Maybe it is in your neighborhood. You know, not long after I became a believer, I felt God calling me to Asia, to a place known as Malaysia. It's 2% Christian. There's a definite need for Christ. And I knew several people there. But after talking to Gary Warmeyer, who spoke here just a couple of weeks ago, he turned me on to the idea of domestic missions. We have more non-Christians in this country than any other country other than China or India. As I thought about missions and where God was using me, my heart was in other places across the world, but God gave me a burden for my own neighborhood. Now, what is God placing on your heart? Go make disciples. And then the second part of that command is to baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, this one's an easy one. You know, you have either been baptized or you have not. And so there's a little place for you to say, yes, I have, or no, I have not. You know, if you have not had an opportunity to publicly confess your faith in Christ and to be baptized, it's a command. He doesn't say if you've got some extra time or if you feel like it or if you're in the mood, get baptized. It's a command. Part of disciple-making is baptism. And I understand that there's a lot of things that prevent us from wanting to get baptized. You know, when I first made a faith commitment, I got baptized. I spent a lot of time talking to people around, you know, uh, around me, what was going on in my life. It was interesting. Uh, it's even more interesting to be able to have my mom actually sitting in the back. <laughs> but I had a conversation with my mom about baptism. I got my baptism certificate for, from when I was an infant. You know, we talked about what that meant. My wife was the only one I knew that had made a faith commitment and publicly been uh, baptized through immersion. And, uh, 
know, I can say that right now that th- there was some tension. You know, I, my friends were making fun of me at work. People were thinking I joined a cult. But you know what? God honored that commitment to make that step. And as a result of what God was doing in my own life, I've had an opportunity to see my entire family make public confessions of faith and identify with Christ in baptism. That's huge. Don't let the fear of baptism stop you from doing it. There's no good reason not to do it. It's a command. You know, if you want to know a little bit more about baptism or about child dedication, I've got some information out at our small groups table. We actually have a class next Sunday. That's in between the first and second service. Well, we'll walk through this. I'll answer any questions that you have. Our next baptism service is in September. I want to encourage you that if you haven't taken that step, to make that your next step. You know, if you've got any questions about that, a little place, you write down what questions you have, concerns. And uh, let me just encourage you that if you have already been baptized, this is something that you should be talking with other people about. That's a great day. I mean, talk to people around. If you're in a small group, has everybody in your small group been baptized? You know, your neighbor that comes out to get his newspaper. Hey, great news. You know, you've been baptized. (laughs) You know, baptism doesn't save you. It's like a wedding ring. It's an indication that you are a part of another family. And every person that gets baptized, every person that commits their life to Christ, every person that gets baptized, there's rejoicing in heaven. We're all wearing these little wedding rings together. You know, we're one big group. Baptism is a part of becoming the fellowship of other believers. We're to go make disciples, we're to baptize them, and then we're to teach them to obey. Teach them to obey everything I commanded. Everything. What's everything? There's a lot of stuff in here, isn't there? <laughs> you know what I figured out? Everything is a lifetime. You see, following Christ is not a pastime. You don't just do it in your spare time. It takes everything that you have. We are constantly learning. We all have a growth step. If you've been a believer for 50 years, praise God. What's your next step? Every one of us have a growth area, a growth area of opportunity. Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, identifies several areas of growth, uh, Bible reading, worship, serving, fasting, silence and solitude, prayer, evangelism, stewardship, journaling, learning. Identify what your next step is. Investing in the lives of others, apprenticeship. You know, think about what your next step is. You know, for me, as I look down through this, my biggest one is silence and solitude. You know, I am a, uh, I'm an activator. All you have to do is point me in a direction and, you know, I'm there. You know, I have a hard time stopping and listening and waiting on God. That's a growth area for me. You know, what's your growth area? There's a little place for you on those dots. You can fill one of those in. If you've never picked up that book, it's a great read to supplement your Bible reading, your Bible intake and prayer. I want to encourage you to take your next step. There's a difference between knowing God's priorities and seeing them reflected in your life. And so this morning, it's my prayer for each of us. That as we think about the Great Commission, that we look for ways to put them into practice in our lives. And we want to help you do that. Discipleship is a process here. And if we can help you take your next step, we would love the opportunity to talk with you about that. If it's a faith commitment, it's about understanding a relationship with Christ after the service today. I want to invite you to all be standing right here. Just come up. We can talk about it. I'd love the opportunity to pray with you. Our overseers will be in the front office. Uh, you can pray or talk with them as well. But as we come to a close this morning, I want to pray that God would continue to stir in our hearts a desire to experience more and more of him. It's life transforming. It's a blast. And it has an impact on our eternities. I'm going to ask our uh, ushers if they would come forward.
Um, if you haven't had an opportunity uh, to fill out that welcome slip, if you're a first-time guest with us here, uh, we want to thank you for being with us. You can bring that slip out to the welcome table. We have a gift for you. Uh, if you're a regular attender, you know, please just let us know that you were here. Uh, and then down at the bottom in that prayer request, if we can pray for you or help you take your next step, you can just indicate that there as well. And at this time, we also want to lift up our tithes and offerings. It's through your faithfulness and through the stewardship of those that call Springbrook Church their home that we've been able to be effective for reaching our community for Christ, that we've been able to go into all the world, that we've been able to fulfill the commands of Jesus. as set forth in Scripture. And so I want to thank you uh, for your faithfulness uh, in supporting this ministry. This time I'd like to ask you if we could just uh, uh, lift this up uh, to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I thank you that you saw fit in your good and perfect plan to call us into a relationship with yourself. And God, we just commit our lives to you for your glory. God, I just pray that you would use us to be effective for telling others the good news. I pray that you'd help us to be effective at encouraging one another and spurring one another on towards faith and good deeds. God, we lift our offerings up to you this morning as a fragrant offering. God, may you use them for your glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.